Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abysmo, Farisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vabysmo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O-H-C-P.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the New Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. I'm Eric Noodleman. I'm an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Shiley Eye Institute of UC San Diego. And I have the pleasure of being joined today uh, by my friends and colleagues, John Miller, who's an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Mass Ioneer. Hi, Eric. Thanos Papakostas, who's in private practice with the Retina Institute in St. Louis. Hi, Eric. And Priya Vacaria, who's also in private practice with the Retina Vitreous Associates of Florida in Tampa, Florida. Hi, Priya. Hi, thanks for having me. Great, thanks everybody for joining me. So first we're gonna discuss a set of pieces on retinal detachments, uh, which compare the outcomes of vitrectomy with pneumatic retinopexy. And then after the break, we'll have a deeper dive into these two papers and discuss their clinical relevance. So let's kick off the discussion with our pair of papers. The first one is a uh, post hoc analysis of the pivot trial. The title is Outer Retinal Folds After Pars Plan of Vitrectomy versus Pneumatic Retinopexy for Retinal Detachment Repair. Uh, and the authors are Wei Wei Li uh, and others. Uh, and it was published online in September of 2021 in Ophthalmology Retina. So, uh, John, you want to help us out and uh, summarize the first paper? Thanks, Eric. Yeah, so as the title indicates, this is a, another paper from the PIVOT trial uh, from Mooney's group up in Toronto who's really leading the way and kind of analyzing um, how we can improve retinal detachment repair and specifically looking at uh, imaging biomarkers. So this was a randomized controlled trial assessing post-operative outer retinal folds, a post-hoc analysis of the previously uh, mentioned PIVOT trial. Uh, so they were looking at the incidence of outer retinal folds after both vitrectomy and pneumatic retinopexy at one month on OCT. So they had uh, 88 eyes that were MAC off and um, 83 of those had gradable OCTs at one month. Um, in the two groups, there were 41 eyes in the PPV group and 42 in the pneumatic retinopexy group. They used a specialized algorithm <clears throat> to look at a specific section to identify these outer retinal folds with on-foss slabs on the OCT they were all graded by two mass graders at one month. They then also assessed visual function by an ETDRS letter score and quantitative metamorphopsia assessment at one year post-op. So just remember, this is a post-hoc analysis of PIVOT. There are only 83 patients total who were evaluated and all had to be attached. So obviously, there were some participants lost uh, from the original treatment group for those that failed to achieve success with the first procedure. Uh, when they looked at the incidence of retinal folds, there were 34% of these folds in the vitrectomy group and 14% in the pneumatic retinopexy group. This was associated with uh, statistically significant differences in the ETA address letter scores at one year. Uh, in the vitrectomy group alone, there was a mean ETA address of uh, 63 letters in those with ORFs and 75 letters in those without outer retinal folds. They also compared the horizontal and vertical metamorphopsia scores and found that those were similar in patients with and without outer retinal folds. 
The main take-home point from the authors was that their outer retinal fold risk was much greater in the group with vitrectomy versus the pneumatic retinopexy. And they offered several different hypotheses. Um, this links to some of their other work looking at ellipsoid zone loss. But the idea was that generally uh, a slower reabsorption of the retina that you uh, retina, subretinal fluid and pneumatic retinopexy led to less of these outer retinal folds. And a vitrectomy were drying out the retina really quickly. And the idea is that this sort of pins the retina and leads to some of these folds, which can make more distortion or more visual abnormalities for patients at one year. Um, they also found these outer retinal folds were worse uh, associated with worse visual acuities at one year. So I think this, uh, like many of the other papers from this group, does uh, give some support to the idea that pneumatic retinopexy should still remain a viable option. Um, I think more work is probably needed to um, to help analyze this uh, this concern, and I think that um, the vitrectomy group is, you know, did show that more of this metamorphopsia in their analysis as well as outer retinal folds. All right. Well, that was a fantastic and comprehensive summary. Really appreciate it. Thanos, what did you think? What's your what's your first uh, quick reaction to that paper? Yeah, this is an important paper from an excellent group in Canada, Dr. Mooney's group. They've done a phenomenal work over the last few years to try to dissect what exactly the role of uh, pneumatic is and uh, all the characteristics associated with it. Now, a couple of points is that all these outer retinal folds will eventually go away. So at three months, it's about 10% of the patients in the vitrectomy group and about 7% in the pneumatic group. At six months, all the folds were gone, except for one patient in the vitrectomy group. Now, the notion that the presence of the outer retinal folds is associated with poor vision, in my opinion, based on the p-values on the paper, it's more like a trend. Uh, I don't think a p-value that is close to 0 0.05 with these small samples can give you like a clear-cut uh, conclusion. So I think it's more like a trend. Uh, it has to be validated with a larger sample size, but the bottom line is that this fault will go away eventually. Great, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna dig down on some more details after we discuss the second paper, which uh, Dr. Vicaria is gonna uh, summarize for us. Priya? Um, yeah, so I'll just go ahead. So the second paper is uh, the Align paper. The title is uh, Retinal Displacement After Pneumatic Retinopexy Versus Vitrectomy for Regmatogenous Retinal Detachment. Uh, the authors are Carolina Francisoni uh, et al. Um, and this is published online in December 2021 in Ophthalmology Retina. Um, so this was a prospective non-randomized comparative trial that assessed uh, the incidence of retinal displacement following pneumatic retinopexy or vitrectomy. This was done in three centers, uh, one in Toronto, Canada, one in the United Kingdom, and then one in Hamilton, Canada. And basically what they're looking for is something similar to the study we just mentioned, except in this, uh, mostly they're looking at retinal displacement. And so they're comparing these two groups to see the difference in retinal displacement. And then this, uh, conversely to what John just mentioned, here they're looking at three months postoperatively. Uh, they use two masqueraders to assess postoperative OCT and fundus autofluorescence images to look for retinal displacement. And they also looked at best corrected visual acuity, metamorphopsia, and then anisoconia at three months postop. So in summary, they had 157 patients total in this group 
Uh, a relatively balanced group, 74 patients underwent vitrectomy and 83 underwent pneumatic retinopexy. Um, of note, the pneumatic retinopexies were often performed within 24 hours, while the vitrectomies were often performed within 72 hours. The pneumatic retinopexy group did have an initial face down and steamroll for um, as part of their protocol, whereas the vitrectomy group did have an initial face down um, as well uh, for 24 hours, followed by positioning of the break. And um, they, when they looked at the primary reattachment rate, because of course, you know, retina specialists are concerned about primary reattachment, they did have 93% in the vitrectomy group versus 82% in the pneumatic retinopexy group. And among those who had achieved primary reattachment, um, in, there was 51% in the vitrectomy group who had retinal displacement on fundus autofluorescence versus 15% for the pneumatic retinopexy group. And that was deemed to be statistically significant at a p-value of less than 0.01. Now, among the patients who were initially intended to be treated with the vitrectomy or pneumatic, regardless of whether they achieved primary reattachment, there was a 50% rate of retinal dis displacement in the vitrectomy group versus 25% in the pneumatic retinopexy group, again, statistically significant. Um, among the two groups, there was no differences found regarding epiretinal membrane, cystoid macular edema, residual subretinal fluid. And um, overall, the visual function among these two groups uh, did trend towards having better outcomes in the pneumatic retinopexy group. Uh, the vitrectomy group had about a logmar of 0.50, whereas the pneumatic retinopexy was 0.33. Um, similar to the study that John just summarized, the anisoconia scores were worse in the eyes with vitrectomy versus pneumatic retinopexy, although they had a similar vertical and horizontal metamorphopsia findings, again, similar to the pivot trial. And so in conclusion, the authors um, came to a similar conclusion as the pivot trial, which is that vitrectomy is associated with greater risk of retinal displacement compared to pneumatic, um, and uh, postoperative retinal displacement was associated with worse anisoconia and retinotogenous retinal detachment patients. Uh, the biggest difference between this and the study that John just mentioned, again, is that they looked at retinal displacement in this study. Yeah, that is a, another beautiful summary. Thank you very much, Priya. So, Thanos, your reactions to, to this paper? Yeah, another very important paper by the same group. Um, a few key points to remember in this paper, the pneumatic group, the procedure was performed within 24 hours, while in the vitrectomy group, it was within 72 hours. So as we know, in a macula of retinal detachment, uh, even in macula of retinal detachment, timing is key. We know that photoreceptors die through the process. So perhaps, you know, there is a bias there depending on the timing. So if you let more fluid accumulate, perhaps you might have more displacement when you put the macula back on. That's one thing. Uh, the other thing that uh, strikes out is that there is a difference in the single surgery success rate. Uh, the pneumatic group is around 80%, 82%, and the vitrectomy group is 93%. So it is a sizable difference. Uh, it's around 10%. So basically for every 100 uh, pneumatics that you will do, uh, around 10 will uh, probably need another surgery. So it is a sizable difference. It seems that the larger detachments didn't really matter if it was one quadrant or two quadrants or three quadrants. Now, when they're talking about anisoiconia, it's essentially micropsia or macropsia. And that's something very important that we really haven't looked in the past. And this paper does a beautiful job trying to analyze it. Uh, so overall, 
success rate matters. Uh, that's our primary goal in retinal detachment surgery. Uh, however, the quality of the vision matters too. So we have to probably pick the right patients for each procedure. Perfect. Uh, thanks, Thanos. Those are all really excellent uh, points. So at, at this point, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and I want to remind the audience that uh, we're going to have a more in-depth discussion uh, when we come back. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. I'm Eric Noodleman, and I'm here today with Priya Vakaria, John Miller, and Thanos Papakostas. Now we'll be talking about the clinical relevance of the two papers we discussed before the break. So uh, Thanos, I thought it was really interesting uh, that they quantified uh, both anisoconia and metamorphopsia. Is that something that you routinely do in clinic? Yes, thank you for the question, Eric. That's something that we don't routinely do in the clinic. And uh, in order to you know, figure out exactly how they did this test, you have to actually look it up because that's something that you know, we probably haven't done since training. Uh, but to summarize, uh, metamorphopsia is calculated with uh, the M chart. So you have a set of vertical lines that then are uh, flipped horizontally and depending on the gap of between the lines, uh, a score is given for metamorphopsia. And then for anisoiconia, the patient is wearing a red glass in one eye, a green glass in the other eye with half circles. And then when you know the patient sees one circle, then they basically quantify the anisoiconia, the extent of the anisoiconia. Uh, these are very specialized tests. We don't do them in uh, everyday uh, clinic. We only record subjective complaints that the patients have. Uh, so it's a little bit hard, you know, for the audience to translate these numbers to something tangible that we know. Despite that, it's a very scientific way to uh, monitor things and uh, uh, check the progression. Yeah, I, I agree. Anisoconia is not an uncommon complaint after uh, uh, repair of a macula off retinal detachment. Uh, what do you usually tell your patients, Priya, when they complain of anisoconia? They say, I close one eye and the other eye has, has a little small image. What, what do you tell them uh, when, they, when they explain that? Yeah, you know, it's hard. I, I tell them that um, it may get better over time. Things can improve up to six months to one year later. Um, and I think as retina specialists, we're all so focused on reattachment that sometimes, you know, I have to admit, I say, the macula looks great. The retina looks great. You look great. You're attached. And I pat myself on the back because they had a macula off detachment with 27 tears and lattice and they look great. But, but these complaints are not small and to have a patient have anisoconia can affect their work and, you know, everything. So, you know, while I provide reassurance, um, yeah, I actually thought it was nice that there is a way to quantify this, um, which I, I don't do in clinic like Thanos mentioned. Um, but yeah, I usually tell them it can improve up to six months to one year later, and either it does improve or they stop complaining about it. I'm not entirely sure which it is. Yeah, I have the same experience. I always tell them, you know, you got to give it some time. It can take up to a year for you to reach your, your final potential. Um, but I thought it was 
quite sobering that in this study at a year, they still found a significant difference. Um, John, does that, does that affect your decisions about how you would uh, uh, deal with a retinal detachment? Yeah, I mean, I think the study was interesting, but I'm not sure that it convinced me to really change my practice. I think that there's you know many different ways to repair retinas. And I think there's a lot of patient factors and sort of training and, and personal preference, surgeon preference factors as well. So I think most important is to do what you're good at and to do the right procedure for the for the correct patient. So I, I am pretty selective in the patients that I do pneumatics on, but I think that's that our approach with vitrectomy, I don't really see this that commonly in my practice. I certainly don't see as many autoretinal folds as was reported. Uh, admittedly, I don't uh, look as carefully as these authors did with mass graders and, and carefully segmenting, but it's not the common thing I see postoperatively in my patients. Um, so I still think that vitrectomy is a, is a very good option. I think the higher success rate is still what I, what I would lean on. Um, the, the, the pneumatic success rate in the trial was, was admirably very, very high, you know, above 80. I don't think that many other papers show pneumatic success as, as good as these authors achieve. So I think that's very impressive and that may be why there's a, a closer uh, score with some of these metrics that they looked at. Yeah, the, the changes were quite subtle, actually. You know, when I saw those images, I, I see that all the time uh, after detachments, and I think it looks pretty good. Retina is attached. Um, I hadn't previously paid much attention to, uh, to the changes that you see on an OCT, for example, like the ones they showed in, in, uh, in these papers. Um, Thanos, do you pay, uh, had, had you noticed that previously? I mean, I do pay attention for outer retinal folds and, uh, you know, all these uh, structural changes we see on the OCT. Um, I have to say that the displacement that they see, you can only pick it up if you do the wide angle load of fluorescence. Uh, so sometimes you don't even have the machine in, you know, all the satellites that you go to. You might not have autofluorescence on a wide angle camera. So it's a little bit harder to pick it up then. The other thing I would like to make a comment on is anisoeconia can be either from micropsia or macropsia. So we have micropsia when the photoreceptors are essentially stretched or they're attenuated. You can have missing photoreceptors. And macropsia, which is the opposite, which is quite rare, is when the photoreceptors are more packed together. Mm -hmm. Now, a component of the anisoeconia is just the fact that they had a macular of retinal detachment, there is attenuation of the ellipsoid zone. So I'm not 100% convinced that the anisoeconia is from the displacement. It could be multifactorial. And in some people, it could be less. In some people, it could be more. But I'm not 100% convinced that the displacement is the one that is causing anisoeconia. Yeah, they do show uh, um, a... Uh, illustration of how uh, the anisoconia can occur, uh, particularly with the micropsia. So when they show the inferior displacement of the retina, you see the, the shadow of the previous location of the vessel and the vessel below it. So if, that, if that's the case and there's inferior displacement, you would get uh, the, the micropsia. The other thing that um, which, struck me about that example, Eric, is that there was a lot of heavy, you know, there's a lot of laser in that in that patient with that repair. And I do think that that probably does contribute. And maybe that's another reason why there's potentially more uh, retinal alterations or, or twisting than you would get with cryoing a single tear. I think people are a little bit 
more loose in the amount of laser that they might put in if they're already inside vitrectomy as an eye. So I think that's an important consideration is how exactly is the vitrectomy being done and, and what, you know, because there are so many different small decisions when you're re repairing a retinal detachment. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I also thought it was interesting, you know, they had to be able to get an OCT at, at one month uh, through the macula in order to, uh, to do the analysis um, and the post hoc analysis of the pivot trial. And um, it, that means that they must have used SF6 in those cases, because if they used C3F8, most likely they wouldn't be getting an OCT through at least all of the macula at, at one month. Do you think that, uh, that influences the results at all? Would it be different if they used C3F8? I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think, you know, the point here is that they, the point they're trying to make is that they want minimal gas in the eye. They don't want full gas fills. That's why the lead author uh, of the group is advocating the, when you have to do a vitrectomy, do a minimal gas vitrectomy. Um, so I would assume with SF6, they got a full fill at the end of the case. Yeah. Priya, how, how do you think uh, primary buckles fit into the algorithm here? Do you think that they would develop a, um, anisoconia, metamorphopsia, similar to uh, to a detachment or pneumatic or, or not at all? That's a good question. I think the theory for why patients get this is that in intraop in a vitrectomy, when you make a retinotomy or you drain through a retinal break, you are mechanically draining fluid and suddenly reattaching the retina. And there are different portions of the outer retina that um, are in different stages. Some are still swollen, some are dehydrating. And so you get these folds because you have this abrupt mechanical uh, reattachment. So if that, and, and in pneumatic, the reason it doesn't happen is because you have this more gradual reattachment where the RP is pumping out the fluid. And so everything kind of progresses at the same rate. So in a primary buckle, you know, most of the time you're draining, but I, I mean, I would say we're usually not draining completely flat, flat. Yeah, there's always some residual fluid. You usually get the break flat on the buckle, but at least in my experience, you always still have some residual posterior fluid. So I would actually expect you would not get as much outer retinal disruption or outer retinal folds in that case. Um, and I haven't really seen it as much in my patients with primary buckles. Although I do have to admit, we don't do primary buckles as much as we used to. Um, it, it's really in a select set of patients that we do primary buckles, but I would expect it would not be there. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I, I rarely get a, a, you know, a complete drain. Uh, I do do a lot of primary buckles. I take care of kids. And so I'm often doing primary buckles. Um, and, uh, you know, it can be very slow to get the retina to completely reattach. Sometimes you get these little pockets of uh, subretinal fluid that can take months, uh, or even up to a year to go away. But anisoconia uh, and metamorphopsia is not a common complaint. But I would think that that would be a nice um, a, additional study to do, um, looking at the same, uh, metrics. You know, I do want to ask a question. Would these papers make any of you more willing to do a staged pneumatic to vitrectomy? You know, something they'd oftentimes do in Europe, which is putting in a temporary gas bubble, reattaching the retina with that, and then going in for a vitrectomy, um, and surgically repairing it there. Let's not take cost into consideration because I know that's a big Big issue with that, but would that change any of your opinions on that? Yeah, thanks. Uh, great question. Um, I, you know, I, I sort of consider all pneumatics a potentially staged procedure. 
if you think of a pneumatic success rate working three quarters of the time, if it's not working um, in the first week, uh, I'm, I'm going to do a vitrectomy. So um, I don't do a lot of pneumatics, but when I do, I'm, I'm certainly prepared to do a vitrectomy um, if, it, if it doesn't work within a week. Um, so it, it doesn't change my plan. I'm, I'm influenced by being in a, in a situation where I have an OR available 24-7. Uh, um, and I think that the groups in Canada are influenced uh, in the opposite way. So I, I, I think that these papers are, are quite compelling. Um, it does actually make me reconsider uh, my treatment algorithm. Perhaps I will do more. Uh, pneumatics if uh, additional studies continue to confirm these findings uh, and doing it in a staged way I think you lose little uh, if you if you do put a gas bubble in and you're successful great and if you're unsuccessful it doesn't really reduce your chances of having a, uh, a final uh, success if you do a vitrectomy you know within about a week John, what do you think? There, yeah, I, mean, I think you brought up some good points that the one paper I'd call out would be uh, fr from Stanford with Prithi Muthunjaya, where they did show an increased incidence of pneumatics on Friday. So I do think access to the OR and timing of presentation do affect, in some cases, uh, the, the surgical choice. I do think that you can sometimes lose things by doing a pneumatic first. You know, you can, uh, you can create additional breaks inferiorly sometimes with dissection of the vitreous with the gas bubble. You can also make posterior feathering of the lens. So you may have a harder time with the vitrectomy at the one week. Um, and I, I think I think what you do gain with the vitrectomy that may not be, it just depends on how you shave, but I think you can identify really small breaks with this careful spell depression and, and good peripheral shaving with high flow. And I, I think we can still do better with high, higher success rates with vitrectomy. So I, I still think there is a role for pneumatic and select patients, but I do you think you're taking control of the eye more quickly and ensuring that you're identifying all the breaks under high magnification when you're examining in the OR? I think that's the main thing I worry about with pneumatics is missed breaks. No, I certainly agree with you completely that this uh, you know single single surgery success rate is 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 higher with a vitrectomy. We um, I think that that's been validated by many studies. The question is whether or not you're losing something if you uh, put a gas bubble in and fail and then do a vitrectomy. Um, if their hyloid is attached, definitely you can cause some inferior breaks and feathering of the lens is a very good point. Um, but the, the fact that, you know, at a year, they're still having some measurable differences that can be symptomatic really gives me a, 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 a opportunity to reconsider uh, what, I, what I generally have been doing. I would consider it on pseudophagic eyes, uh, not on phagic eyes, and definitely eyes with small breaks, not large breaks. In fake eyes, you can lose the lens. And you can lose the lens just by uh, the patient waiting in the pre-op area, uh, lying flat, and then getting wheeled in. Very quickly, there's going to be feathering on the lens, and then uh, it's going to be a tough situation. In pseudo fake eyes, yes, I think it might play a role with small breaks, not large breaks. I wouldn't do it in a patient that has a one clock hour, two clock hour horseshoe tear or a GRT or things like that. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I don't think anybody would disagree with you about that. And do you guys think that the um, pivot and align trials are uh, are the same, uh, or are there significant differences that we need to um, we need to pay attention to? Priya, 
Um, I think they're generally about the same. You know, they measure two different things. The pivot trial measures outer retinal displacement. The aligned trial measures, uh, or sorry, the pivot trial uh, measures outer retinal folds. The aligned trial measures retinal displacement. So they're looking at two different, you know, uh, the pivot trial looks at the onfos slab OCT, whereas the aligned trial is looking at the fundus autofluorescence. But I think in essence, they're looking at very similar things. Although they do mention in the pivot trial that um, the retinal displacement is actually more related to the gas bubble and mechanical pressure uh, from the gas bubble and subretinal fluid moving. But, it, but in my mind, I think at the end of the day, it boils down to the anisoconia. And that's really what we're looking at here. You know, whatever we see on an image is not as important as what the patient's experiencing. And so in my mind, they're looking at very similar things. Yeah, I think that brought up a good point, Priya. I actually, one question in my mind is, I didn't know if I followed the physics of their proposal that there's less force on the retina with a 30% gas bubble or 70% gas bubble, 80% gas bubble. I don't, I don't believe that that is how the surface tension of the gas works against the retina, but I think uh, there may be some additional conversation around that. Well, thanks everybody for, uh, for this excellent discussion on two really interesting papers. Uh, I think this was um, a lot of food for thought um, and I'm sure there's gonna be more to discuss uh, in the coming years. So thanks to the audience for listening to New Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS and please stay tuned for further episodes.